0: paranormal underground radio join us each week as we delve into some of life's most complex questions it's time to explore the unexplained with your hosts karen frazier and rick hale
1: It is Thursday night, and if you can hear my voice, you're exactly where you need to be. I am your host, Rick Hale. This is Paranormal Underground Radio at HazyRadio.com. Welcome. Uh, Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. First off, uh, Karen will not be joining us. She has a previous engagement, so it is just going to be me tonight, and uh, God help us, I know. Uh, so tonight joining us we have a great show. We welcome back Lloyd Auerbach, a parapsychologist, author, college professor and apparently a chocolatier as well. So we're we'll definitely going to be finding out more about the whole chocolate thing and ghosts and hauntings and how that mixes. Um but I'm sure it is delicious. So he will be joining us after we take a break and uh it'll be you know he I think he was one of our very first guests. Um Cheryl am I correct in that? He 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 was one of them, yes,
0: definitely. Yeah. And that was when we think, went live in uh well, when was that uh July of 2010, I 2010, think. 2010.
1: Yep. I think. Yeah. yeah so. I think he was our, one of I think he was maybe the third or fourth guest. I yes. do believe that. Yes, yeah. I think so. So after almost four years, we are inviting Lloyd, we are welcoming Lloyd Auerbach back. So it's <laughs> that sounded funny. Um, so it's definitely going to be an interesting show. He's got a lot that uh, that he wants to talk about, and uh, one of my favorite subjects that we'll be talking about is the Rhine Research Center. That's uh, that is something that has always fascinated me.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun tonight. Sure. Lloyd always has such cool theories, and I love hearing about his work and. And we have a lot of questions from our good friend, Elaine. And she just typed out in the chat room that if we run out of things, she has her B list of questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, she, she always, uh, I can't remember who it was that we had on, but man, she rocked us with a ton of questions. And yeah. It was great. So thank you, Elaine. You're brilliant. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so, uh, Cheryl, anything going on?
0: Wow, just just recovering from the Christmas festivities and New Year's, right. and um, I guess really, what did we do? We we mainly stayed around home and relaxed. We did see, we did get to, get to see The Hobbit, the second Hobbit movie, which was really cool. Really like nice. that one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, other than that, nothing too exciting. What about you?
1: You know what we are digging out from a ton of snow over the last three days it's like if i'm not working i'm home shoveling and then sleeping and then shoveling some more so you know what i grew up in northern illinois i have nothing to complain about well it is par for the course
0: i cannot relate to that at all because i'll tell you a couple weeks preceding christmas Mm -hmm. it was about 85 here where i live so it it was great like we were breaking records um for heat around here and i was like it seems like it's you know the middle of july (laughs) instead (laughs) of december so i am a little jealous of your snow even though there's
1: nothing to be jealous (laughs) about um (laughs) yeah seriously it's it's like a 15 not maybe 10 12 minute car ride from my house to work okay 45 minutes yeah because of all the snow. And you always get the road commanders. Now anybody who lives in this area knows what a road commander is. Like myself, I drive a Saturn mm-hmm. and uh so oh. I get those guys or you know even sometimes women mm-hmm. who drive right up behind you and they got that big old four-wheel drive truck, man. And they they are just <laughs> commanding the road and they want you out of the way. And it's like yeah. they they're actually causing more problems part right. For themselves, then, you know, like, just get out of my way. I mean, cause an accident, you know, but well, you're always going to have that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: you are. I drive a Saturn. I drive a Saturn mm-hmm. L200, and Chad drives a big uh, Ford F-150 truck, so...
1: <laughs> so he's part of the problem, then. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. No, he's a good driver. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I just forgot. We also saw The Secret Life of Walter Mitty with Ben Stiller. It was pretty you darn good. I don't even
1: know what that's about. Well,
0: it was, I I, I think it was loosely based on a book, I believe, but um, it was, it was a really, really cool movie and it's like one of those eye openers where, uh, you know, it makes you think a little bit more about life. So, but it was also, it was also funny. It had its its funny moments and its serious moments and, you know, a little little quirky too. So I would recommend that one. It's pretty good.
1: Yeah, you know, I usually wait for stuff to come out on. uh, Do you guys have those red box machines out out there in California? You do. Okay. Yeah, it's like a buck to rent a brand new movie. I mean, you can't and and you 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 can't lose on that. Right. The way movies come out, that directly from the movie theater, bam to DVD. Now, remember back in the day with when with with movies when they had like VHS. I even remember Beta. It would be. A couple of years mm-hmm. before it was finally released, oh, and yeah. then to buy one of the videos was like a hundred and fifty dollars.
0: Oh yeah, we had beta.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I yeah. remember beta. So did we? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. I remember watching the Wizard of Oz on beta. Oh
0: my god, it was like a huge luxury. To- yeah. Oh yeah. Totally yep. funny. Yeah. Yep.
1: So uh, mm. yeah, I mean, I remember too. We used to we couldn't afford to buy uh to to buy a VCR, so you could rent them. Hmm. Yeah. That's you can't it does you know you don't really have to do that anymore. You got no. phones, you got your computer, yeah. you got places like Netflix or Hulu, all you gotta just type it in and boom, you're watching.
0: You're there. I know there's so you're many there. options these days. It's it's crazy.
1: Right. Right. Mm. So I think what we're going to do is is we are going to break a couple of minutes early. Does that sound okay with you? Sounds good. Great. So when we come back, we are going to be talking with Uh, parapsychologist, author, and chocolatier, uh, Lloyd Auerbach. So stick around. It's going to be live.
0: Hi, this is Cheryl Knight, editor for Paranormal Underground Magazine.
2: And I'm Chad Wilson, Paranormal Underground Magazine's publisher. Every month, Paranormal Underground Magazine explores the unexplained by examining topics that range from haunted sites to ufology to to cryptozoology. We also spotlight investigators and researchers who continue to pave the way in a field that seeks to answer some of life's most complex questions.
0: If you want to read about topics like psychic phenomena, demonology, conspiracy theories, crystals and herbology, and much, much more, visit paranormalunderground.net and start exploring the unexplained today. Visit us today at paranormalunderground.net and get a 12-month
3: digital subscription for 15% off the cover price. you want to keep up with what's going on at paranormal underground
2: then tweet us on twitter at paranormal
3: or follow us on facebook at paranormal underground meet us on myspace paranormal underground
2: there's no need to be in the dark about what's going on at paranormal underground join us on your favorite social networking site today
3: I'm here with my co-host of Paranormal Underground Radio, Rick Hale. Hi, everyone. We invite you to join Paranormal Underground Radio on the Hazy Radio Network to explore the unexplained every Thursday night from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific and other times in the flyover states.
1: Each week we talk with investigators in the field, researchers, authors, and experts about topics that include paranormal investigation, ufology, cryptozoology, and spirituality.
3: So please join us each Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern for Paranormal Talk with great guests right here on HazyRadioNetwork.com.
2: Hi, I'm Chuck G. Come join me on my new show called In the Dark Radio. From topics such as ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, and more, this is a show you don't want to miss. So stay tuned right here on the Hazy Network from 11 p.m. to 12 a.m. Eastern, right after a paranormal underground, and let's keep the radio rolling.
4: Hi, this is Hazy, and you're listening to the Hazy Radio Network.
3: The views expressed and the opinions given by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect those of Hazy Radio Network, its affiliates, or sponsors. All shows are independently owned and broadcast for entertainment purposes only.
1: Hey everybody! Welcome back to Paranormal Underground Radio. I'm your host Rick Hale. This is HazyRadio.com, and uh, tonight, after uh, one of our very first guests, uh, after about three and a half years, we will welcome back to the show parapsychologist, author, lecturer, researcher, and chocolatier. Uh, yeah, Lloyd Auerbach. Thank you, Lloyd, for coming back on the Underground. Oh, uh, sure,
2: sure, my pleasure.
1: So, happy let's New Happy New Year to you as well. How was your How was your holiday?
2: quiet which
1: was good yeah yeah same here uh basically i work the whole holiday and uh but that's fine because that just racks up a ton of money so welcome back lloyd thank you so much for joining us again it's always a pleasure to have you know any parapsychologist on the show definitely like to get that kind of um um perspective uh, i've always said that uh parapsychology is the real science behind paranormal uh, paranormal investigation and research would you agree with that
2: well, it is the real science behind the, the investigation of these things. Uh, parapsychology, which started out as psychical research back in the 1800s, late 1800s, mm-hmm. um, that's what they did. I mean, that's one of the, the the edicts of the main thrusts of research and investigation was investigating things in the field. So, uh, you know, you hear from these ghost hunter folks sometimes that there's no connection to parapsychology, and they don't know their history at all, nor do they know anything about what's going on in the field generally. So. You you can't do investigations without knowing something about other psychic phenomena because it's all tied together.
1: Right, exactly. Um, I oftentimes have that too. I don't like, I I hate the term ghost hunter, and I'm not a fan of paranormal investigator. I can't call myself a parapsychologist because I don't have that kind of education. So I actually use the term
2: psychic researcher. Yeah, you can, psychical researcher is a great term. You could also say you're a, um, you know, an amateur or lay parapsychologist. That's okay. As long as you qualify, you know, there's plenty of amateur geologists out there and amateur astronomers. They, they just are people who try to know something about their fields. Sure. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are very knowledgeable who are not, have no professional education in parapsychology or, um, or academic education in parapsychology, but they've self taught through reading lots of books and journals and things like that. And they are, you know, of the best of the amateur parapsychologists.
1: Okay. Well, I will definitely, um, um, maybe I'll start putting that on my letterhead. Amateur
2: parapsychologist.
1: (laughs) So, you know, Lloyd, I always like to ask people this because I think it's important. You know, like every great superhero, of course, has a uh, origin story. Um, I'm not suggesting you're a superhero. But, uh, well, maybe you are. Um, Lloyd, what is it that, you know, initially interested you in um, studying psychical phenomena?
2: Well, it really was um, comic books and certain TV shows, science fiction, as a little kid. All of those things kind of spilled into uh, my interest in this subject. Partly, I think comic books and summer sick had a lot lot to do with it, and then certain TV shows kind of egged it on, in the sense that the idea that human beings are more than what we think we are, that we have other potentials, Mm -hmm. is to me incredibly important, and that's what Psychic experiences of all sorts indicate. Uh, and as a little kid, I got really interested in, in superpowers because of comic books, sure. and also in ghosts and things like that because of, of not because of horror films, although I used to watch horror films all the time, but because of shows like Copper and The Ghost and Mrs. Muir and, and those kinds of shows. More right. human, you know, the humanized ghosts, which is what ghosts really are, it's very human, mm-hmm. and. It it all showed to me, it suggested to me that there was something more here. And so when I, I was a little science geek as a kid. In fact, I was kind of a, a rock and I loved geology as a kid and astronomy and other science, physical sciences as well. But then I discovered parapsychology through some of the books that I was reading because I was also interested in folklore. And right. in the library Dewey Decimal System, a lot of the folklore books are right next to the parapsychology books. Mm-hmm. So I actually found that there was a science of parapsychology and that just kind of drew me in completely.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely. Um, I, I I grew up in a uh, in a very mixed um, racial family. My uh, father's side of the family is a Native a Native American and Irish, and so I grew up a lot with the folklore as well as with spirit lore, and also seeing a, a spirit at a very um, young age was what interested me. Um, Now, when it comes to ghosts and hauntings, I know that uh, parapsychology and what we know today as being uh, what I like to call pop ghost hunting, there's some very divergent theories. Let's talk about uh, parapsychology. What are some of the theories of what a ghost uh, spirit or haunting may be in, in parapsychology?
2: well um apparitions what we call ghosts you know most people think of ghosts as somebody who stuck around after death that's that's typically um around the world that's kind of the the idea and we use the term apparition and and to try to separate ourselves somewhat from the folklore and it's a term that's been used since the 1800s in fact but Mm -hmm. the idea of an apparition is a conscious entity somebody who has uh for the most part all this is not always true somebody who has died and their consciousness sticks around after death, uh, communicates for a while, or can communi- communicate from wherever it is they go after they leave. But it's truly that person's human personality that has survived the death of their body. Now, there are categories of apparitions that are living apparitions. That's another thing that we do look at. Look at There are sometimes apparitions of living people. Often they're out of their body, having an out-of-body experience, or they're in a crisis, or they're dreaming, and people have seen their apparitions as well. And then we have hauntings, which relate to places. So apparition typically relates to people. Hauntings tend to relate to places, and even to objects. In that, objects and places seem to be um, have memory of events, even people who used to be there. Although the events that are replayed, because it's a replay, kind of what people talk called residual haunting, the replay is typically um, not necessarily related to death. Okay. We have many hauntings uh, of imagery of people. Uh, I guess a classic example would be a place where somebody had committed murder, and people going in, witnesses see the murder being committed, over and over again, maybe, Uh, every day at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I actually had a case like that years ago. There was one issue that that is very interesting, and that is the murderer was still alive. The victim was dead. The murderer was still alive, because it's a recording. It's a video recording, you might say. It's kind of a psychic recording of an event that happened, and it's irrelevant whether the people in that recording are dead or alive. It's sure. totally irrelevant because they make the recording when they're alive, not when they're dead. Dead people mm-hmm. do not make recordings.
1: Right. Now I'm with you on that. Um, now this this energy is this is is it just is it purely psychic in nature, or is there something with physics behind it?
2: Well, there are a couple of ideas or concepts around the haunting. Uh, to be honest, apparitions are a difficult thing because in science, we still don't have a good definition that's agreed upon for what consciousness is. There's a right. great debate going on whether people are conscious at all, whether it's just a trick of the brain or whether there's something more to the brain than the brain. <clears throat> so you're either a ma- kind of materialist monist, somebody who believes that it's just the brain or you are a, some form of dualist where you think there's something more than the brain that might or might not survive. Some people who are dualists do not believe that anything survives the death of the body, but others do, uh, like myself. Yes. So it's tough. Uh, since we don't have a, a handle on what the physics of the um, consciousness is in the body, we have no clue about it outside the body. We know things that it doesn't, it's not made of, it's not made of electromagnetic fields. It may affect electromagnetic fields, but it's definitely not made of electromagnetic fields. So we know certain things because of experiments and other sorts of research that's been done. Hauntings are a different story because living people are the witnesses to hauntings, and there is a correlation between high magnetic fields in the environment and those haunted places. So Mm
5: -hmm.
2: it seems that there may be an electromagnetic or geomagnetic, more likely, um, specifically, model of the Earth holding information and our brains slash minds capable of decoding it. So the Earth becomes, or the location becomes, the VCR, and our brains are the playback for that.
1: See, so I was going to ask you that. So, in order for a haunting to a, to, to exist, in order, um, now, you know, of course, you grow up with that, that house on the street that everybody says is haunted. But does a human being have to be there? Sort of like a symbiotic relationship. The percipient must be there in order to see the ghost, or is that energy oh, oh, oh. always there?
2: Well, here's a question for you. Um, you walk into a room and there's a TV is on and there's a video playing, a DVD is playing. Then mm-hmm. you leave the room is the DVD still playing? Yeah. Uh, you're not well, watching it? This, yes. This is kind of like, you know, so it's the same thing. It may be playing back but the human brain may be necessary in order to, uh, or the human mind, in order to kind of trigger the replay. But okay. You've you got to have an observer. Without an observer yeah, it could still be playing but you know, who knows? Right. You don't have an observer. Right.
1: So it's kind of a, um, you know, a tree falls in the forest. If anybody's there to here, it doesn't make a noise. Well,
2: so no, the, that, goes, that, that doesn't make a sound because it, it does make a noise if somebody's there. It doesn't necessarily make a noise if no one's there because noise mm-hmm. is a, a quality that we give to Right. Themselves. Sure. No, it
1: was was more or just meant as a joke. But, yeah. um, you know, pol- poltergeist is another um, issue. I personally, um, I, I can actually feel the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when somebody suggests that a poltergeist is a demon, or well, yeah, that's wrong. That is so. It, wrong. it is wrong. It is wrong. Yeah. And and I hear this, and it's like I'm like, no. I actually had a case where a woman was experiencing a poltergeist in her home, and she herself was the focus. She had a team in her house that told her, Oh my God, you have demons and your autistic daughter is the one that is demon possessed and causing all of this. Yeah, so I know. I, I I thought I actually I think I did throw up a little bit of my mouth when I heard this. And yeah, yeah and, and it seems to be all too common these days, or they say that a poltergeist is a human spirit that is completely out of control and totally pissed off at everybody in the environment. What does parapsychology have to say concerning the poltergeist?
2: Okay, so there's a history of the word poltergeist, first first of all. goes back at least as far as the 16th century in Germany. And it was applied to a specific type of haunting or ghostly activity. Uh, In that physical activity was observed, but no actual visual ghosts were ever seen or heard. So they would hear possibly raps. It was actually called, poltergeist means noisy ghost because raps were often heard in the walls and still are to this day in some parts of Europe. Uh, it's not a very common aspect of poltergeist cases here in the States, but it's a very common one still in England and other places, and that's because it involves human beings and beliefs and all sorts of things.
5: Sure.
2: And, and over the years, um, it was probably the early psychical researchers uh, for the SPR and the ASPR in late 1800s, and then eventually uh, Nandor Fodor was probably uh, was one of the first people who came up with a a more psychological theory of and model of poltergeist phenomena. And then Bill Roll and J.P. Pratt and Scott Rogo and other folks really uh, kind of focused that model even further. And Bill Roll is kind of the the modern-day father of poltergeists and what it is. And it does surround living people. Uh, The poltergeist activity does surround a living person. It Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't seem to have any reports of apparitions of a human nature. On rare occasion, there are... Um, imagery there's imagery of non-human types of things, but there's a reason for that as well. <clears throat> and there's an individual who is at the center of the Poltergeist case who we call the agent. Mm-hmm. The, the model that we have is that the agent's unconscious mind uh, is relieving stress or affected by stress and tension the person's involved in. It's usually psychologically unbalanced, uh, stress and tension, emotional. Uh, it can be physical to some extent as well. And their unconscious is kind of let loose and it gets let loose to psychokinetic activity. It sometimes comes out as imagery from the unconscious. In fact, the monstrous imagery that comes in is very classically uh, Jungian archetypal, uh mm-hmm. shadow entity, that kind of stuff. And it stops if you work with the agent. That's the, the key here, is right. that you can make it stop pretty pretty easily. I, I love poltergeist cases because you can actually affect the change relatively quickly. And you can on rare occasion even work with the poltergeist agent to be accepting of their ability and even do things consciously. Right. But they are coming from a living person.
1: Yeah, I you know what you you mentioned Nandor Fodor and I've always been a been an admirer of his and I I, I and I hope I'm saying this right. The the uh, Seaford poltergeist case.
2: The Seaford sir. yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Right. And, and and that's and that's oh, I'm sorry.
2: I was gonna say that's Bill Roll and J. V. Pratt's uh, case in 1958, which on Seaford, Long Island, where um, essentially they came up with the term, recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. Right. The first one that was really labeled that. Uh, Although Fodor had done that before Roll. Right.
1: Yeah, that seemed to be the one that really laid down the groundworks and the rules that you know, hey, this is not a ghost. This is not a demon. This is not anything to be necessarily afraid of. But you, you talk about um, uh, people seeing monstrous visions or, or shadow people. It, which is rare, yeah. Which, which is rare. Do you think that there is a possibility, however unlikely, that this energy that is expended by the agent, uh, the psychokinetic energy, is capable of either drawing things in or maybe giving greater life to an entity or entities that are already there?
2: Well, you know, that's next to impossible to determine, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, because there's no communication happening. That's the okay. one thing that's really important here. There's, there's there's just no communication happening here at all, uh, and no indication that anything intelligent is is happening either. Uh, but there is a pattern to the effects, typically, and the pattern does fit the psychology of the agent. That's the thing that's also interesting. Is that if you kind of do a metaphorical analysis of what's going on, there's representation of what the, the physical things that are happening, the activities happening, represents kind of what's going on with the agent as well. Uh, right. It's always possible in any circumstance that you know somebody steps in and does it. You know, I've kind of kiddingly said that uh, it's either the agent or there's a bu- there's a conspiracy of ghosts trying to convince parapsychologists this is just living agent BK. <laughs> You know, you can't disprove that, you can't disprove that it's not God, you can't disprove that it, you can't say that it's not, the, you, you can't disprove things, things like that. Right. You can't, dis- yeah. can't prove a negative or, or disprove a negative, yeah.
1: Yeah, it just, it, it seems like um, you can show all the evidence in the world, uh, written documentation, things on video, things on, uh, you know, audio, but it's just, it's never good enough for the scientific community. Why do you think that is? Why are they so reluctant to say, okay, there is something to this?
2: Well, because of the main philosophy in science, uh, and the main philosophy in, in Western science is a very materialist, empirical model, which mm-hmm. says that all is matter and energy, um, that consciousness and mind has nothing to do with anything. Okay. Now, now we do know that it does in some respects for quantum physics, but not in the way often that people talk about. Uh, And it it just, what's interesting is that um, there are, there have been studies, surveys of scientists in the academic uh, community Mm -hmm. looking at their beliefs in this stuff. And the people who are most open to the possibility that psychic experience or psychic abilities exist, psychic phenomena, are quantum physicists. The people who are yeah, least heard that. open to least people who are least open to it are psychologists.
1: You know, it's it, it's so weird because I actually I, I work in the uh, psychological field. I work with uh, children who have behavioral and learning disorders, mm-hmm. and a lot of the people that I work with they know what I do, and it's almost remarkable how often I get somebody say even a doctor in psychology or psychiatry, and they're like, you know, Rick, we know what you do, and you know. I had this happen to me, or I had this, or I had that. And they're they're out there. I am convinced that they're out there. They're just so So afraid.
2: Try to get them to to publicly admit that. Right. They they are afraid of the social lashback in their circles. And and frankly, um, partly because of the skeptics' organizations really polarizing uh, the belief or the the disbelief in this. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who have actually, over the last 40 years, have probably created the biggest problem for parapsychology, uh, in, in the academic world because they've made fun of people. It's not that they've just said, you're wrong. They've actually made fun of people. And, got, yeah. and, and because of the belief, people have gotten fired. Uh, I know people have gotten fired because from their academic jobs because of their expressed attitude about parapsychology.
1: Right. Yeah, it seems to be a very cynical rather than skeptical worldview.
2: Yeah, it's, it's actually not skeptical. It's... Uh, disbelief it's, it's beyond skeptics
1: right yeah now i have a question from elaine who is a writer for paranormal underground magazine as, uh, um as well as a, a listener and a contributor you talk about with hauntings and one of her questions is that she has um how do you make the determination a place is in fact haunted do you have a threshold where there needs to be x amount of evidence or is one good evp enough
2: Oh, E have nothing to do with it being haunted at all without okay. labeling the place haunted it 's witness testimony okay and, and really you know for a place to, for a place to be haunted, you know, technically you only need one witness, but that makes it tougher. You need multiple witnesses typically and and places are haunted sometimes only for a small short amount of time they 're not right. necessarily haunted for decades you know the thing that 's that's amazing to me is how many people in, in the again let 's go back to that ghost hunting community how many ghost hunters go and find an abandoned building? and declare the place haunted when no one, no one has been in the building for decades and there's not even any stories about the building you know any witness testimony from 40 years ago nobody seems to know anything about placing but it looks spooky so it must be haunted <laughs> yeah i you actually know, by, that, by that token by that token any every place is haunted actually right right
1: yeah it's like saying you know some you know some place in america is built over an ancient Amer- you know a, a native american burial ground it's like well you know then the whole country would be haunted then um, right now, I, I find that very interesting that you should bring up the the ghost hunting community. Now, that's one of the things that um, seems to uh, take a big, you know, parting from parapsychology. Personally, me, I am a huge believer in the personal experience. I believe that the personal experience is everything. Um, I didn't have an EMF detector or anything strapped to me when I was eight years old. So, what? Why do you think that it's like they're just, they're so reluctant to say, okay, the personal experience is the most important, but, you know, we need all this other stuff. What is the problem there? TV. Okay.
2: It's the TV shows. It has nothing yeah. to do with anything legitimate. It's, it's all about the television shows. They see a mo- they've seen a model of what ghost hunting is supposed to be, or that's, mm-hmm. the, that's what they think it is. The model having been totally set by producers more than anybody else. And uh, that's what they follow, and that's what they—that's what people have come to believe. Uh, you know, it's the same attitude um, about not connecting parapsychology because Jason and Grant have nothing to do with parapsychology on the show. Clearly, it has nothing to do with anything. They're not even any experts on the show, and that has you know little to do with Jason and Grant. At least initially, it has everything to do with the producers not wanting anyone smarter than them on the shows.
1: Right. So basically, you're like Dr. Barry Taff—you just absolutely love paranormal TV. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I do a lot of TV, but fortunately, the ones I've worked with, uh, for the most part, the producers I work with, I've I've been able to, um, rein them in a little bit and educate them. Sure. Uh, I I try not to work on. You know, I've been contacted by a bunch of these other shows, and I, with rare exception, I've done any of these. I haven't done any of these shows. Yeah. Um, partly because I know that it's going to be crazily changed. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. one thing. And the other thing is that the these days uh and then Barry just had a whole article about this about the release forms that were being presented with are not only non-disclosures which I refuse to sign, uh if I can't talk about my appearance at least after the show is aired, uh then I don't want to have anything to do with it unless you're going to pay me a lot of money for my silence, you know. <laughs> I can be bought, but <laughs> it's going to take a lot of money. Um
1: Every man has his price, right, Lloyd? <laughs> every
2: man has his that's right, that's right. Uh but they, you know, they they make it seem like that uh, make it clear to you that you know what you may be, we may edit you in all sorts of really bad ways. You look, you might look terrible. Just so you know that. So please sign that right away. You know, and, and I refuse to sign those things.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, now, now another thing that really interests me about um, about TV or the you know the ghost hunting community, um, as well as with parapsychology, where it parts ways at um, psychics, mediums. Personally, I will never do an investigation or an inquiry or anything without the impressions of a trusted psychic medium. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that another thing with television that's like, or or should I rather ask, why do you think television doesn't want to have anything to do with that?
2: Well, some TV shows do. You've got uh, the criminal type of shows, and you do shows like The Haunting of with Kim Russo, and there have been shows with uh, some really good mediums and other folks. I'm talking about the big ones,
1: though. You know, yeah,
2: like but, hunters, you know, I, again, I think, I think that, honestly, I think that if there had been a psychic who fit in in a personable way with Jason and Grant early on, uh, who was willing to let let the crap the producers were putting people through
5: happen,
2: mm-hmm. I, I think there would have been a psychic on the show. Um, before that show happened, I, I was involved with a number of different pitches of shows over the years, especially in the late 90s. And this one episode, one show, in fact, uh, where we had come up with a framework, and you know, of course, the, we were getting these requests from the production company for putting together a team that was racially mixed. That was one thing. It was kind of interesting,
5: mm-hmm. um,
2: which was not a big deal because I have a pretty diverse group of people anyway. Sure. Uh They wanted at least one very attractive woman on the show.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, I ha- now. I happen to have an ex, a, a graduate student of mine who was who was a former model, so she was great. Mm-hmm. But then it came down to they wanted a psychic who was in her early twenties and preferably blonde and bouncy.
5: This oh they told yeah. Them.
2: <laughs> and all the psychics I work with, you know, were a little older and not, not one was blonde, but she wasn't bouncy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I live, I, yeah, they, uh, they're wrote... they, they really good.
2: So, yeah. they they threw us aside for another group because we okay. didn't have the psychic they were. So, they're trying to cast certain pers- per- roles and things. And that's another reason why you don't see them because to find somebody good who fits the demographic casting that they want is not all that easy.
1: Yeah, um, that, that's why I like to. Use, I put air quotes whenever I say reality paranormal television because it's anything but. I mean, the 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 two psychics that I work with, uh, Nancy Laporta and Kathy Lattis, um, they definitely will not fit in that demographic. But oh my god, are they fantastic! I mean, right, I right. I I have known many people who claim to have the gift. Um, But I can count on one hand and maybe one finger on the other in 22 years of investigating and 32 years of research that I can say this is a person that has a real legitimate ability. And that's going to take us to another question um, that um, Elaine gave us. She gave us a ton of questions, Lloyd, and I'm going to try and segue them in because they are brilliant questions. Um, Her question is this. Lloyd uses psychics. Um, do you test them in any manner to see if they are truly psychic and how does he determine who to work with or not?
2: Well, um, the testing is in the, in the actual field testing. First of all, I I mainly have worked with psychics who I've come to know, um, through recommendations or through other, you know, through professional means. So the people Mm -hmm. that I've worked with, many of the people I've worked with over the years have a track record and like Annette Martin, who I worked with for many years until her death. She had a great track record. Uh, okay. These days, uh, the folks that I've worked with are, are, have actually been some of my students, and they've been people who uh, have sh- you know, shown to me because they've demonstrated their ability in certain circumstances. I brought them in cases to see how well they do. I kind of test them in the field in that okay. way. Uh, you know, and, and let me step aside here for a second and say that not every really good psychic is good at every type of task. So Correct. bringing a yeah. psych- psychic, for example, into a poltergeist case Unless that psychic's really good at reading people, living people, you know, uh, and not every, you know, mediums are not always that good with living people. Sure. So unless the psychic is good at living people, in a poltergeist case, that person's going to be no better than the next guy. Yeah. So... Their abilities are not that great. I, I know people who are great at talking to ghosts. They're not good in haunting cases because it's an energetic thing. It's not more. And the, and the other way around, too. I you know people who are very good, uh, psychics who are very good at working with people, but they couldn't tell you that there was a ghost present if you know if there were five of them in the room. Yeah. So it just really depends on their abilities, and I have to kind of parcel out or figure out the right people for that. Uh, but there are also other qualities that I, uh, I look for in a psychic. It's not just ability because there are many people who have really great ability, but frankly, um, they are... Difficult personalities, otherwise. Sure. So we look for things like that they're good team players, that they're really okay about be- me questioning their perceptions in order to get them to look at what they're perceiving in a different light. So I'll ask, I want to ask people to ask questions and to focus them and refocus them, and some people are just too indignant that I would even question whether they're getting anything some, you know, correctly. Correct, yeah. So um, I have long talks with these people beforehand to make sure that I can work with them. Uh, I want them to have a good sense of humor. They need to be able to know to have fun. They need to not take things seriously. They need to take direction when working with clients and know when not to say things mm-hmm. to freak clients out. I mean, there's all these different qualities. So they have to be people who can play well with others. Yeah. So, the, you know, the best psychic in the world, I'm not going to take on a case if they don't fit those other qualities because, you know, I may have them look at the case at a distance, but I'm not taking them with to a client site because of that, those other issues. I don't, I don't work with divas.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's definitely not. That's not good for you. That's not good for the field. That's not good for the client. That's not good for anybody. Now, right. I I oftentimes find myself getting in debates with people concerning psychics, and um, they will. And it's it's funny too because even people who call themselves you know professional skeptics, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, I am using air quotes once again, um, mm-hmm. professional skeptics, they like to bring up this. Well, if there's such a psychic, why didn't they know that? Uh, the, the, this horse was going to come in, or why didn't they know the uh, lottery numbers? And that's another thing that really makes my hair stand on end, because even if you're a professional skeptic, you should know this. How do you answer yeah. something like
2: that? Well, well, it's pretty simple. First of all, precognition, and the best psychics will tell you, you can't predict the future 100%, no matter what. Uh, things change. And the perfect example in science is meteorology. Okay, Science of, of weather, weather prediction how accurate is that? That's
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh Yeah. Well, let's see. I live, I live in uh, northern Illinois, about 30 miles north of Chicago, and they said we were going to get 20 inches of snow and we got 11. So yeah. it's not the most accurate thing in the world.
2: No, but what's interesting is the closer in time to the prediction and the event in, in the weather, the mm-hmm. easier it is to predict sure. because you have more data that's less likely to change. The same thing goes for predicting the stock market. So you really are dealing with um, something we know from uh, from our parapsychological work in precognition that the further out you're trying to predict something, the less likely you are to be accurate about it. Now that right. doesn't mean that you can't predict; you know, people can't predict big events, but the problem, this is the nature of psychic experience, is and psychic abilities, is that it's not always going to be coming with um, all the all the information you need to put the puzzle together.
5: Hmm.
2: It may have the central piece of it, but it may be missing. A timestamp, where maybe missing, you know, a, a specific location. So there are sometimes pieces that are missing, and the same thing with with predicting the weather. Uh, and yet, people live their lives by the weather predictions.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's uh, you know like like I said, it, living here in Northern Illinois, there's just no possible way that you can predict that because one day it's 50 degrees, the next day it's minus 20, and you're getting you know 95 inches of snow on the ground. But you know, let's you know with with talking about psychics and stuff, let's let's go into your um, uh, your work at the Rhine Ryan, uh, Ryan Education Center, which is a, a place that I've actually written on before. And JB Ryan was an amazing brain. That's all I can say about about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentor investigators and psychics and mediums. How do you do that?
2: Well, there's, there's just several, several things here in what you just said. Um, for the Rhine Education Center, which is part of the Rhine Research Center, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm on the board of directors for the Rhine Research Center, um, uh, last year and this year, actually, I, they're just putting up a course that I'll be teaching, an online course on apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeist investigations, which will be starting on January 27th. And So that's one of the places that I teach. And uh, Nancy Zingroni and Carlos Alvarado will be teaching some other courses as well in parapsychology through the Ryan Education Center. And uh, highly, for people who are interested, these are really good courses. Um, There's a few of us who are are trying really interested in education and getting people up and running in the field as much as possible, both in in the laboratory and also in actual field investigations. The mentoring program I do is is more of a one-on-one thing that I do on my own. And I w- I've worked usually by Skype or by phone. Uh, if they're local here in the Bay Area, I work with them in person. I've worked both with investigators who want to take their uh, their knowledge base to the next level. They want to bounce ideas from their cases off of me. They want to kind of go through the process. Uh, that's one group of people that I work with. And then I also work with psychics who want to learn more of the science and and really hone their abilities based on what we've learned in parapsychology about psychic abilities and about working with psychics. Uh, As it happened last year when I announced I was doing this. I ended up with more psychics and and mediums than I ended up with investigators, which was kind of interesting to me. Uh, And uh, I'm also mentoring some of the people who have come through my own parapsychology uh, studies program. I actually have a separate program from the Ryan Education Center to a place called HCH Institute here in Northern California. I do distance courses in all aspects of parapsychology, not just investigations. Okay. And those are a combination of MP3, text, and one-on-one on the phone with me or on Skype with me. Oh. Um, and people can find out about those from my website, mindreader.com.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, w- when I first heard about it, it's definitely... Uh, I'm, I'm going to look into it. I you know I, I'd like to think I have a pretty decent education on the subject, but I definitely think you always need more because um, there's so many different kind of things. Um, so, you know what, Lloyd? I think what we're going to do here is we're going to uh, take a quick break and we're going to regroup. And when we come back, I want to cover your um, your work with the U.S. and uh, Russian-Soviet super psychic spying networks that they were trying to put d- together back in the day. Uh, Definitely a very fascinating thing. So I'm going to throw it over to Cheryl, and she's going to take us to break. We're going to pay some bills. And uh, you're listening to Paranormal Underground Radio at HazyRadio.com. We've been talking to Lloyd Auerbach, so please stick around.
3: Hey, this is Karen Frazier, writer and radio host with Paranormal Underground. Since I wrote my book, Avalanche of Spirits, the Ghosts of Wellington in 2010, people have asked me what happened next. In my new book, Dancing with the Afterlife, a paranormal memoir, my Wellington story continues. Dancing with the Afterlife is more than the continuation of the Wellington story, however. It's also the story of a lifetime of afterlife research and paranormal encounters. What I've learned has changed my life, and it might change yours as well. To learn more about Dancing with the Afterlife or to read an excerpt from the book, visit dancingwiththeafterlife.com. Thank you.
2: This weekend, unplug. Getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.
4: This is Hazy, and you're listening to the Hazy Radio Network. Hey,
1: everybody, welcome back to Paranormal Underground Radio at hazyradio.com. I am your host, Rick Hale. Uh, for the first half of the show, we have been joined by world renowned parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach. I'm um, having a fascinating conversation. So, uh, Lloyd, thank you so much for sticking around for another segment.
5: Oh, you're welcome.
1: Uh, one of the things that I really wanted to touch on, and we talked a little bit about this off-air, is the uh, U.S. and Russian Soviet psychic spying programs, a-, a book that you co-authored. In fact, I talked to a lot of people about this, and they're like, well, there's no way that our government and their government would have sunk, a ton- would- would sunk money into such a thing. But apparently they did. Now, can you, well, you know, I- give us a little bit of history?
2: It's kind of amazing that people didn't, you know, people say things like they can't believe it had happened because well, it doesn't take much of a uh, Google search to find this out. Um, <laughs> Stargate was the final name of the project that we were running uh, under um, first the Defense Department, the DIA, and then through uh, the CIA took it over for the last couple of years of its existence. Uh, mm-hmm. through, it was the early 70s through 1995, and it was focused mainly on remote viewing, and it was you know, tasking Army tra- army people. So basically they took people who had had certain types of experiences who were Army personnel and they trained them further and turned them basically into reviewers. And they were tasked with different types of intelligence gathering. Um, I guess you could call them missions. They didn't really go anywhere, but they were doing this uh, from Fort Meade uh, on, the, on the East Coast. and. It was an interesting group. Uh, the amount of money was under twenty two million dollars It was over a twenty year period so it was not a It was not a very expensive program when it came right down to it and In fact, we probably spent more on toilets than we spent you know on a few toilets than we did on remote viewing uh, right. so it was not that kind of expensive thing. It was a program that um, gav- garnered a lot of publicity when the CIA took it over and basically stopped the program because it kind of came out that the, the CIA had, had taken over this program and that they weren't going to continue with it, continue the funding. And our book is, uh the book was co-authored, actually the main author is Edwin C. May, who was the project director for Stargate for many years towards the end of its existence. Uh Victor Rubel, who is a colleague of his, who um, has been over to Russia a bunch of times, and then I kind of came in and kind of touched it up. We have contributions uh, on the American side, also besides Ed, also from Joe McMonigle, who's a well-known remote viewer and was, the, was viewer number one. He was like the best viewer that we had in our our little group here in Stargate. Okay. Um, on the Russian side, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of talk about psychotronic weaponry and psychotronic generators and psychic weapons and the, the millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars and all the research labs that the Russians were we're actually spending money on, and there was books like the *Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain* and a whole bunch of other books that had come out uh, with American journalists and other people going over there and being uh, and seeing what was going on or trying to see what was actually going on.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And what's interesting is that there there's some stories about the start of the Russian program. The Russians kind of got started in some respects because of something we did. Uh, we had uh, some sort of experiment that really wasn't an experiment, it was just basically to kind of sideline the, the Soviets using a submarine and telepathic communication. And it was something that uh, probably didn't actually happen, but the Russians believed it did. So they decided to start spending money on the psychic arms race as they perceived it, because they thought we were doing it. So there was a lot of
1: psychological warfare involved, too.
2: Totally. It was propaganda. Now, the interesting thing was, after the Russians started doing it, uh, our government just apparently decided, well, you know, the Russians, maybe they've gotten somewhere, so we better start spending money on that as well, on our side. So we kind of put ourselves into that corner, but never spent as much money as the Russians did. Um, We have contributions in the book from Lieutenant General Alexei Savin, who was running their program for quite some time, and also Major General Boris Ratnikov, uh, both of whom were ex-KGB, both of whom were heavily involved in these programs. There are also a couple other folks who have contributed from the Russian side as well. Um, back from what the Soviets were doing. And it's really kind of an interesting thing because the way the book is written, it's different than any other book on U.S. and R- Russian or Soviet psychic spying programs, is it's as much about the politics or more about the politics of how these programs actually happened. What were the politics of these programs continuing, letting them continue, and why did they end or did they end in that sort of thing? Um, right. a lot of, re- I, I learned a lot about what the Russians were doing from this. That's contrary to so much of what I had read before, partly because, interestingly enough, uh, that it was a lot of propaganda. I mean, there were a lot of labs doing psychic research. There were a lot of labs looking to try to create psychic weapons, and they Mm -hmm. couldn't do it. They couldn't create psychic weapons. They had psychics. They'd use psychic phenomena or psychic abilities in... In uh, law enforcement, they used it in espionage, you know, psychic spying in some respects, but they couldn't do any weaponry or attacks or anything like that. It just didn't work. But internally, apparently, uh, to keep the funding flowing from the Soviet government, they made it seem like they were making progress. Okay. Now, so wh- there, was a, there was a lot of uh, fooling or putting out uh, false information in order to keep the funding flowing Which, of course, was then accepted by the Kremlin, but also accepted by our side as actually happening.
1: You know, it's it's almost uh, to me it's almost comedic. I mean, it's like you're keeping up with the Joneses.
2: (laughs) It really is. There definitely was a lot of that, and you know, there's some funny stories in here, and also some kind of interesting stories about how some of the psychics had an influence, uh, had enough of an influence to fortunately avert some really bad situations with Boris Yeltsin and other folks. Uh, because they had enough influence, you know, enough input to say, "Don't do this." That they didn't do certain things that could have actually led to some very serious consequences.
1: Right. I mean, could you elaborate on um, maybe one or two of those stories for us?
2: Oh, well, in one of them, there was a a period um, back in the eighties. I think it was in, I don't have it, the date in front of me, but we there was the Russians were in in a contest uh, contesting a an island with Japan mm-hmm. for, for ownership of a particular property, okay. the property rights. And Yeltsin wanted to attack Japan, which, of course, would be a huge mistake at so many <laughs> levels. Yeah. And one of the psychics working for Boris Ratnikov, uh, with Ratnikov, you know, Ratnikov was kind of like the, uh, the, the channel of information from some of the psychics directly to Boris Yeltsin. He worked with Boris Yeltsin. And according to Ratnikov, uh, they, thanks to some psychic thing, picking up on this whole thing, he was able to use that information coming from a psychic who Yeltsin believed in to convince him not to do any sort of attack that it would be the wrong way to go, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a few other behavioral issues. I guess you could say that they helped with a little behavioral modification of some of the Russian government uh, officials who were more you know, aggressive right. than not. Yeah. Calm them down a bit. Uh, and whether they were truly psychic or not, that had a political impact. And the whole program has, from the Russian side had a political impact on what the government was doing. And that's important. And those kinds of things don't, have never come out before.
1: That's, uh, that's fascinating. Now, what about... Now, there's there's always been one central person to to the Russians. I mean, not... Well, I mean, there's many central psychics to what was going on in Russia. But one of them that's always fascinated me was uh, Nina Kalagina. I mean, she yeah. will, she was able to show testable and retestable and... Provable abilities um, of what this really was all about. You know who was she, and and how, how did you know what happened well, to her? I know that it was a very sad ending.
2: Yeah, Kalagina um, was was a housewife. I mean, in some ways, she's a footnote in this book, and it's an interesting footnote, as it happens. She was a she was a housewife, also known as Nelia Mikhailova. Uh, she is probably the best known because of the video of a woman moving things. You could find lots of video, old footage of her on YouTube just by putting in Nina Kulagina or Kuladina. And uh, there was controversy from the Western side. Several people said that she was using threads or using magnets. And in fact, she had been caught a few times at fraud. Uh, but there were instances of, and I've talked to some parapsychologists from here in the States who did go over and see things being being moved by her, and they were convinced that they were not not a fraudulent situation. But what's interesting that I I found, really, again, a footnote, and I've got Ed May trying to, I've asked him to talk to um, General Savin and see if we can get some more information on this. I'd really like to know where this came from. But apparently they found years ago that she was, um, her skin was basically sweating or giving off histamines. Okay. It's a particular, you know, which we have the antihistamine, which prevents allergy attacks and such. But it was giving off histamines. And hismans are subject to static electric, uh, to static electric influence. So her hand, think of her, her hand um, putting out a kind of a, a sweaty mist, it would coat the non-magnetic o- items like matches and things like that, and then her body was giving off an electrostatic field that caused the objects to move. So they, I, they did figure they did figure out this is interesting. They did figure out the motive operating physics behind it and biophysics behind it. What's interesting is it still falls under psychokinesis okay. because it is her mind she was tasked with moving these objects that her body and brain decided that this is the best way to do it is kind of interesting, but it still was an intentional effect on matter without herself actually touching things and that's sure. not a normal ability for human beings
1: right or is it a normal or could it be a normal maybe thing maybe you it just is. Lost I mean,
2: it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we've lost it or just never really had it and just are discovering it. it it's kind of it's difficult to say. Um, but it's this is just we know that in other cases of psychokinesis, I've done my own PK research and, and we were looking for electrostatic forces and there weren't any. And then the next time we did a, a test with some the thing about PK is that it seems to shift its motive force. Even with the same task, there can be five different ways to move an object, and mm-hmm. you could test it five different ways and come up with five different explanations for the same with the same subject, as if it kind of shifts. It kind of cycles through a bunch of different ways to do it.
1: Sure. Now, um we have a question from uh, Dave in chat, and I think this kind of, you know this no this does go directly with uh, what we're talking about right now. Um, his question is, there are some skeptics who say psychics have never come up with good information to solve cold cases uh, or any cases for that matter. Does Lloyd know of any instances where any psychics have given substantial information that led to solving a case?
2: Well, it depends on what, what you might mean by substantial, because the police often have substantial information, but they're missing a piece. And uh, my late colleague Annette Martin worked extensively with uh, our now-retired uh, detective, Richard Keaton, with the Marin County Sheriff's Department, and he swore by her. He used her on a, num- num- a number of cases, and she did come up with specific bits of information that helped them resolve the case, fit in with the evidence they had, allowed them to go down a particular path, allowed them to identify a suspect. Mm Kathleen Ray is another psychic who worked with police who was able to work with a police sketch artist and allowed the police to focus on certain suspects. They may have had a range of suspects. And without her knowing who the suspects were, she drew, she had the sketch artist from her description draw who she believed was psychically that she was picking up on was the killer or was the, the perpetrator. And by focusing their attention on that individual, because inevitably that was one of their suspects. And it basically confirmed for them where they needed to put their investigation. Um, I don't know that any psychic on their own has, just said, has come up with the solution in a way that certainly would go into court, because they still need the physical evidence and the witness testimony and all that other stuff to prove that this person killed, that, that you know, did that murder sure. or did that crime. But there have been documented cases. Nancy Myers and other individuals who work with police, and the police will document those cases. Not to, you can't you can say the psychics have solved the case, and, and Annette used to say she and the police together solved the case. But she didn't, you know, she provided clues or provided direction or provided information that helped them resolve the case. She found bodies, um, mm-hmm. which was enough sometimes to resolve a situation.
5: Sure.
1: Yeah, I oftentimes tell people that they're like, um, I tell them that psychic or u- using a psychic or medium is not really, it's not, um, it can't really be used as evidence because most people don't really see it like that. But it's definitely a way to proceed in an investigation.
2: Right. Right? Well, it helps focus the investigation provided it's someone who the police actually can work with. And that's, uh, I've consulted with police on occasion on the best way to work with psychics. And a lot of it's the same way that remote viewers work with their um, their associates, you know, it's people who are trying to focus them on the in, the right information.
1: Sure, uh, we have another question from chat, and this is actually from the medium that I work with extensively, uh, Nancy Laporta. Her question is, why do you talk about psychics instead of mediums in an investigation? I'm I'm assuming that she's wondering if there's a difference.
2: Well, there is a difference, but I'm I'm kind of grouping them all together. I could be I should be saying psychics and mediums every time I say psychics here. Uh, because I I work with people, like I said earlier in the program, there are some people who are really good at at mediumistic abilities Mm -hmm. who who are not any good at reading energy. They're they're just not very good with hauntings or poltergeist cases. And there are psychics who cannot talk to the dead. So it just really depends on the type of case we actually happen to have. Um, I am president of the Forever Family Foundation, which is a foundation that works with mediums, especially in conjunction with family situations, family grieving, and supports the work of mediumists, uh, mediums in scientific research and research on mediums as well. So I work with mediums uh, quite a bit and uh, know many mediums. And it, it just really depends on, you know, there are mediums who are, all mediums are psychic, but not all psychics are mediums.
1: Right. Yeah, I, f- I found that as well. Um you know what? What I want to do is now is I, I definitely want to go into more of the questions that Elaine Davison has uh, sent to us because they're really great questions and I, they they do deserve to be asked. Um, her one question is: Is uh, the USS Hornet? Now that's one of the places that you have investigated extensively, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Now, what type of data was collected, and what is the most haunted? Part of the ship, because apparently uh, within the next month she's going to be she's going to be sleeping there.
2: well, um, the data that we collected when I first got involved in late '98 um, most of the data we collected was witness, through witness testimony. We interviewed dozens of individuals, uh, most of which we have on video in fact, sat down and, and uh, did actual uh, video interviews with people also had them take us to different parts of the ship where they'd had their experiences. And, uh, my colleague David Richardson and I produced a, a, sh- a kind of an initial documentary that this ship sells called The Haunting of the USS Hornet with some of the early witness testimony. We'll be releasing a lot more of that hopefully in the next couple months on DVD as well. A lot of the initial interviews that people have had. Uh, you know, we, we tracked probably 29 different locations where Witnesses had experienced multiple sightings of the ghosts on the ship. You gotta remember, this is an aircraft carrier, so the number of compartments and the size of the ship is huge, given the crew complement was over 3,000 people uh, when it was in its heyday. So it's huge, it's an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Uh, But over the last, you know, five or six years, we're talking about intelligent people, uh, entities here. Uh, So there are dozens, based on witness testimony, there are dozens of apparitions or ghosts there. Uh, and they move around. So, uh, you know, I think that probably one of the most active spots consistently has been the forecastle or forecastle of the ship, which is in the bow of the ship, the front of the ship. Um, mm-hmm. That seems to be a spot that was one of the initial places that people had experiences, and that's kind of a congregating spot for the ghosts. But there are um several different locations in the ship that were um, not previously opened when I was there. You know, they they've, over the years, they've kind of cleaned up different areas of the ship. They had to deal with lead paint, and asbestos and things like that. And over the years, they've kind of opened up more and more of the ship, and there's still some areas that they don't have open up, but more and more areas are open. And uh, we've gotten different types of different and new experiences from people. Um, The folks who are aboard the ship in the education department keep track of a lot of the experiences. They take people on ghost walks. There's a couple of docents who are keeping track of their own experiences as well as outsiders' experiences. And there are places like the Admiral's Quarters, uh, and there's a conference room there that apparently has had a lot of activity. There's um, a pilot's ready room that has a lot of activity uh, reported, or a lot of experiences reported. So it's it's not because we have intelligence here. We have conscious people there. It's not that they always congregate in one spot. They don't kind of stay in one spot all the time. So some of the places that they used to congregate in previously are not um, are not as haunted anymore. So they've sure. either moved around, or, or they've shifted. Then again, it may just be that as the ship has opened up, they've decided to focus their attention on new areas because it was interesting to have tourists come into this new areas. Right.
1: Um, a question from JL in chat. Um, wanted to know: Can you repeat where the Hornet documentary will be available and when?
2: Oh, it is. It's been available for years. It's, oh. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean. Uh, the best place to get it right now. I'm not sure if the Hornet sells it on their website, on the USS Hornet's website. They do sell it at the Hornet shop, the gift shop, mm-hmm. and uh, people can find out about it on my website at mindreader.com. If you go to the merchandise area, you, you can get that too.
1: Okay. Now I know that you know with with um, with the USS Hornet, of course, people want to know who haunts the U. Who who are some of the most prominent um, well ghosts that hang around?
2: Well. The only real prominent guy is, uh, is the former, or to say, deceased Rear Admiral Jocko Clark, JJ Clark, who was a commander aboard the ship. Um, there was also a, um, one of the chaplains who's been identified and a former doctor. But, you know, there are dozens of people who have been seen. We have not identified them. Uh, they don't necessarily tell their names to the mediums <laughs> who have come aboard ship. Sure. And identifying them by picture is next to impossible. Given you'd have to show people uh, the witnesses' mugshots of thousands of people to try to f- dig through. Right, right.
1: Um, we have another uh, question from Chad, and it's uh, from Chat, and it's from Chad. Um, he wants to know: Does Lloyd think there is a connection between UFOs and paranormal activity?
2: Uh, on a psychic level, there there has there's one model of some UFO stuff. That suggests that um, has suggested that UFOs are psychic projections. Okay. Uh, that's uh, J- Jalen Hynek used to talk about that as a possibility, kind of a Jungian archetypal idea. Um, but and of course, people report telepathic communication with aliens, which I guess makes them psychic as well. But otherwise, we don't really pull the UFO stuff together with extrasensory experiences.
5: Yeah,
1: I find that generally there are very few people. I'm, I'm, I'm actually one of them that will. I don't connect the two, but I will investigate. Uh, you know, hauntings as well as uh, UFOs as well and uh, cryptozoology. I know there's very few of us out there, but you know we're out there. Um, another great question from Elaine, and um, Elaine is very much involved in um, in trying to keep investigators safe and she's actually written a book on you know on safety and it's it's brilliant i haven't read it yet but i've picked her brain a couple of times and she's been on the show and talked about it um her question is what safety equipment does lloyd take along on investigations and do you believe that you may have gotten sick from investigating a location like a
2: physical illness um safety equipment uh, yeah safety equipment. common sense common sense because I, I, mean, I don't go into buildings that are unsafe. So, uh, you know, it's, if, I, if I suspect that there is asbestos or something like that in the, in the place, it's not worth going in there uh, just to see if there's anything, any activity, because human beings aren't in there as the witnesses anyway. I agree. Uh, so I don't really it, it, look at, if they're structurally unsound, it's not worth investigating generally for us. Um, and then uh, for the the real safety concerns that i have really in, about the living people the clients themselves because i've had situations sure. where i have walked in and the clients were less sound than they ac- i actually thought they were on the phone i had a bad assessment of them on the phone i underestimated their um their drunkenness or their yeah. alcoholism or their drug connection things like that the uh, second part i have i have been in places where because of the activity the the imprint i guess you could say um of some negative event in the past. I've kind of gotten to feel like I'm sick, but I have not had any sort of real problem uh, physically. I know that Barry Taff and a couple of my other colleagues have been to places where the geomagnetic fields were so high that they impacted them dramatically, and I haven't, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I haven't been to places like that myself.
1: Yeah, the last time we had uh, uh, Barry on, he told us uh, extensively of that, and it, it sounds like it can be a very um, dangerous. Uh, mm-hmm. kind of situation. But now, you know, with that, um, what about infrasound? Because I know that people talk about infrasound a lot these days. Uh, we've had a guy on the show, Steve Parsons, from the UK, who's kind of the leading expert on infrasound. Do you think that there's any truth to the infrasound that that it does cause you to have hallucinations or see spirits or can cause you to become physically ill? Well, not... You
2: know, we say hallucinations. It, it certainly can um, cause... Vibrations of the eyeball, so that you see shadowy things at the corner of your eye. It's kind of like floaters.
5: Okay.
2: So they're not really hallucinations in that sense. They, they don't. Uh, infrasound doesn't seem to actually affect the brain in a way that uh, that electromagnetic fields can, can cause. Sometimes uh, we do have evidence from Michael Persinger and other folks that certain types of geomagnetic fields hitting the brain in certain ways can cause hallucinations. And that's not the case with infrasound. But infrasound can jostle certain people's bodies enough. That they will feel uncomfortable, and then you make the leap in logic that that discomfort is, in fact, a haunting. You may actually have some issue of seeing something out of the corner of your eye again because your eyeball is vibrating a little bit. Uh, and again, it's it's the conclusion that one reaches uh, that makes it not hallucinatory but haunting related more than anything else. Uh, I know, you know most people have a, a negative reaction when nails scratch a blackboard. Mm-hmm. I don't have that oh. problem. <laughs> lucky <I've> never, you <laughs> Yeah, I know, lucky me But what that says is that my, my body is, is reacting differently to sound And I also don't have a problem with certain bass I mean, I, when when bass is played, I actually feel pretty good it actually I, I like low-frequency sound, actually, it, it makes me feel comfortable uh, I love Didgeridoo music because it vibrates my body in a certain way And it makes me feel good
5: mm-hmm. um,
2: And low-frequency sound, high-frequency sound Can actually can't cause changes in your state of consciousness and then again, that can lead to false conclusions. It can sure. make you feel anxious. It can, can do all sorts of things. So when you say, you know, it's not so hallucinatory in the sense that your, your mind is making something up out of whole cloth, but people do reach inappropriate conclusions because of experiences they might actually have with low-frequency sound.
1: Right. I'll
2: give you an example. Um, there used okay. to be a ride of, of sorts at uh, Disney World. Mm -hmm. Um, which was in their Tomorrowland, and it was uh, called the Alien Encounter, and they took it out apparently because they had some really bad reactions from certain people, Mm -hmm. but it was this experience where you go in and you're told, told this whole story about how this alien scientist is going to teleport somebody from their planet across the galaxy to Earth, and there's a big tube in the center of the room, and everybody gets locked in their seats to watch this to make sure nobody interferes with anything. And, of course, the lights go out, there's a problem that occurs, and... You hear this whole story about how the signal was interrupted by another planet, and they found the signal again. They're going to teleport the scientists to Earth. And the lights go out again and come back on, and there's this creature in the teleport tube trying to get its way out. And the lights go out again. You hear a crash, and then the the lights come up, and the creature is halfway out of the tube. And the lights go out again. You hear the skittering sound, and they're pumping... 3D sound through on either side of your ear to make it seem like the creature is moving around you, and yeah. also using low frequency sound to make you feel you know your body kind of thrum a little bit. So it amps okay. up the suggestion that there's something skittering around you, and then you get hit with this apparent water uh, or supposedly blood when a, a tech up above you screams and apparently gets killed. <laughs> it was just, it was like old time radio, amped up like you wouldn't believe. It, it was at, I, I went on I was there with a corporate thing. And probably went on it, went through it ten times because I thought it was the most fascinating thing. But people were terrified, yeah, and were feeling things and seeing. They're telling me that they saw it in the dark. Now you couldn't have seen it, but you probably experienced that you thought you saw it. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the sound. They were using sound and some vibration of the seat and these little cues like water to make you think that something was happening. And that's what can happen in a haunted place.
1: Right. Yeah, um, in fact, it's, it, we, we were just in Disney World, um, my wife and my son and our family, and uh, I was kind of wondering what had happened to that place.
2: <laughs> Lilo <laughs> and Stitch. I think they they turned it into the Lilo St- and Stitch thing. Oh! Think, yeah.
1: Okay, gotcha. That's where it is then. Um,
2: yeah, I'd, th- I'd heard rumors that somebody had had a heart attack. I mean, I had heard, all, heard all, all sorts of... I don't know what exactly... I think it was just too terrifying for something at Disneyland or Disney World. Yeah.
5: Yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. Um, especially for little kids. I, I, my 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 three year old, who I you know, I called him the uh, the future world's greatest psychical researcher. He's pretty brave, and I think he could actually sit through something like that. Um, well, they
2: didn't. They actually didn't let kids on. That was one of the things that kids under twelve couldn't go on it. And uh, oh, that may have okay, been another, might, might have been another issue
1: too. Okay. Um, another question from Elaine, and it's a, it's a pretty good one, and this is sort of directed at me, cause, uh, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, over the la, I, I think it is, I'm, I'm sure it's probably not. Over the last couple of decades, there have been a lot of, uh, been lots of new equipment put on the market, all of which has pros and cons. A debate is growing in old school versus new school techniques. The reason I say that is, is cause I'm very much old school in my approach. Um, but what are Lloyd's thoughts on this?
2: Well, first, there's a big misconception, getting because of the TV shows, that any of this equipment can detect something paranormal. Right. It is designed EMF detectors. What do they detect? Electromagnetic EMS. field. Mm-hmm. Um, they either detect fields or field changes. And there's, and certain devices do field changes, and certain devices do field strength. And you have to know what the device actually is. Um, so, and there are other devices, and they do what the manufacturer designed them to do, but not that. You know, and maybe they pick up something paranormal but they are designed to pick up other things because we have no idea what we're trying to pick up we ha- we don't have a clue as to what paranormal activity or energy might be so you can't you know by definition you can't design a device to detect something detect something you can't if you can't define it to begin with mm-hmm. so the most you can do with any of these pieces of equipment after you rule out the normal sources of potential changes in those devices is Corroborate, or I guess you could say you can you can connect the connect the dots between what the anomaly is in your piece of equipment to a human experience. But if you go into a building and get an unusual EMF reading, and you can't figure out what's causing it, to say that it's paranormal with no one having an experience is an incredibly stupid leap in logic. It's not even a leap in logic; it's a stupid thing to say. Yeah, and I say it's, and I'm I'm being very harsh here. It is stupid to say that. Because all you've got is anomaly, and now you're qualifying it by saying it's something paranormal. When in fact, you just may not have found that there was another source of of technological EMF or natural EMF because you didn't look hard enough.
1: Right. Yeah. You that's can say it's an uh,
2: unknown. That's it.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So without so without the personal experience uh, going along with this, it's just completely useless, is what you're saying.
2: It pretty much is. It, it, yeah. There has to be connection to human experience. And people use these use devices in, again, a, a building that is old but it never had anybody report anything. So to call the situation, the, 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 even EVP, you walk into a building, you get some EVP, you say the place is haunted. Nobody's ever had an experience there. How do you know the ghost didn't walk with, walk in with you?
1: Oh, God, Lloyd, I am... St- so glad that you say that because i did bring that up um i was at uh, old old south pittsburgh hospital a couple months back and um we did have plenty of personal experiences i myself had something just walk right in front of me it was amazing um but i did bring that up to them it's like how do you know that this place is haunted you could have brought this thing in with you and, of course, that gets, you know, oh, but no, but that's not what they say on TV. It's like, well, you know, I'm sorry, but you've got to have that personal experience. And there were a ton of personal experiences that weekend in this place. It was incredible. Which is good.
2: And that, and that helps kind of, you have corroboration there. You, have, you can connect the dots there.
1: Right. Um, And another question from Elaine is, um, and it's going back to to Rhine Research, um, she writes, I would like to know more about the Rhine Research Center, which Lloyd speaks of often. What benefits of membership are there for rookie investigators who live on the West Coast? And I'm going to ask this too. Is there any benefits for, say, you know, a a psychical researcher about 30 miles north of Chicago?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm on the West Coast. Okay. (laughs) So I I think the, the, the biggest benefit... Um, of being a member is to get discounts on certain programs uh, that are distance programs. Uh, they do have biweekly, so every other week they have lectures that they hold live in Stedman Auditorium at Duke University, and they are now webcasting those. And so we can kind of pick up on those now. But here's the biggest benefit of being a member. Honestly, the biggest benefit of being a member at a distance is the media library that members get because there are all these lectures that they have videotaped and audio recorded that members have access to as part of their membership. Okay. There's a few that are free. So if you want to go to the website and look through there in the media library, there's a few that are free. But multiply that by, like, more than 10. It's, it's like okay. there's a huge library of stuff that's there that members have access, have access to. And that alone is worth the price of admission.
1: How much is the price of admission?
2: $65 for the year. It's not bad. Yeah, it, it's it's a really good thing. And, you know, the Ryan Center does support, um, does offer free information to people. When investigators call and you have questions, uh, and, and pretty much it's kind of a financial crisis in parapsychology overall. Um, we're encouraging people, please, please join and support this, the organization because it does so much good stuff on the educational front that it's really important that people support it. And they're also doing research and they're supporting investigation. They're trying to, to branch out into other areas of research and without membership and without other kinds of support, um, either whether a tax-deductible donation or even a, a monthly, you know, $10 a month kind of supporting um, donation, which is something I'm, I'm starting to do now. So okay. anything you can do to support the field that way. It kind of... People often ask me my pet hates and pet pet peeves and one of my pet peeves is i am like once a month contacted by some group that's doing some fundraiser for some haunted location to keep them in operation Mm -hmm. and they want me to contribute something and you know what what is that haunted location doing it's turning around and charging investigators and and other people to come and investigate now granted it's a historic location that deserves to be supported but why are they not why are these same people not doing fundraisers or supporting organizations that actually support what they're doing? Sure no so absolutely that, yeah, so I, yeah. I kind of turned around and said, yeah, I'm not supporting you guys anymore, I'm not doing this <laughs> unless you support supporting us
1: right no and that's and I, and I think that's really honest, unfortunately, though a lot of these places they don't really care about parapsychology, they want the no.
2: wow factor
1: they want to be on t right. v they so, want, just, want to have
2: that, they yeah. want, what's that? and. Those, those folks, that's fine. You know, you know, If you're honest about that and continue with that, that's perfectly okay, but don't pretend to be serious investigators if you are not the least bit interested in what serious researchers actually do.
1: I could not have said it any better myself. Now, I, I, I want to say before we get to the uh, part of the show that we call uh, Shameless Self-Promotion Corner... Um, Let's talk about another thing that is near and dear to your heart. And, of course, I'm sure you know I'm going to ask about the chocolate. I'm a chocolate addict. Tell us about mm-hmm. how did you get into chocolatiering?
2: Uh Well, I started working. Well, all right, let me back up. Um, back in uh, probably the late 90s, early 2000s, I discovered artisan chocolate, you know, really, really good chocolate. I did always cool. like chocolate, but... There really hadn't been really great American chocolate um, that was easily accessible in bar form at least until probably the late nineties when Scharfenberger really started uh, up in the ante a little bit and I'm really a foodie um, kind of my wife and I consider foodism our religion, so <laughs> chocolate's just kind of a sacred stuff and sure. I got really interested uh, because of these artisans I got interested in how it's being made and uh, It was actually the publisher of my um, book, A Paranormal Casebook, back in 2005. Who She was also into chocolate herself, and I started telling her what I read and what her research about chocolate and what an amazing food stuff it was. And she said, I ought to write a book about my journey to becoming a chocolate, you know, know know-it-all. And um, I started doing chocolate tastings, like guided chocolate tastings, kind of like a wine tasting for events, Mm -hmm. because I also perform other things. I perform mentalism and such and uh, started working on this book, interviewing many, many chocolatiers and chocolate makers, and on and off and kind of putting this book behind me and, and working on other projects. I'm just going to try to finish it over the next few months and get it back out, get it out there. I have to actually revamp it from a, a previous version. But um, one of the chocolatiers, Joseph Schmidt, said that if I was really going to have an end point to this book, I should learn how to make chocolate myself. And okay. I thought that was a really good idea, and uh, my wife found for me an online... An amazingly good online and well, well, I should say good and well respected chocolate program, chocolateering program out of a school called the Coal Shock a lot up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And, uh, Pam Wilson, who's, uh, who actually runs the school, um, is well respected and, uh, you know, it's just this really, uh, amazingly detailed course that I took and passed. So started making my own chocolates in 20, really 2010, but sold and started selling them at the end of 2010, 2011. And I make these little uh, salad chocolates. I do truffles as well, but I can't sell them at the same level I can sell my other stuff because they don't have as much of a shelf life. since They don't have a storefront. Um, my chocolate business is called Haunted by Chocolate, because I am. And they can yep. go to my website, hauntedbychocolate.com, and you'll see the cho- the ghost drops that are on the website there, and um, you know, I'm, I don't sell a lot of them, but I'm a small artisan producer, but I do do events still, and I've to, even done a couple chocolate tastings at paranormal events Okay kind of
1: Right um, oh, I have another uh, question in here from Nancy, and it's going back to um, psychics um, She asks what and who would certify someone to be a real psychic? Also, has uh, Lloyd oh. Go ahead um, I would, and it finishes, also, has Lloyd worked with a medium who goes in trance and allows a spirit to come through to speak to the people doing the investigation?
2: Okay, the, the answer to the second part first, yes, I have. Okay. Um, uh, a couple of the psychics, are, the mediums I've worked with, do trance work. A lot of them don't do trance work, um, but a couple of them, Annette did it occasionally with certain apparitions, certain ghosts, and I'm working with somebody right now who does that every ta- every now and then, but kind of they kind of go in and out of that State of consciousness, not Mm -hmm. completely. And a lot of the mediums are psychic mediums; they can just perceive without actually going into any sort of altered state directly. As far as the first first part goes, um, the Forever Family Foundation has a process to certify mediums, and it is um, you know it's it's a decent, really decent process that also includes looking into the medium's background. (laughs) Frankly, because we want to make sure we're not going to you know some people out there who are whose ethics and morals are a little bit less than satisfactory.
1: Not in the same Uh, way.
2: Yeah, and we want to kind of focus them a little bit on working, really pushing them towards learning about grief counseling, too. Most of the mediums for the Forever Family Foundation have taken upon themselves to learn something about grief counseling because they find themselves in that role quite a bit. Um, So that's one organization that does a certification. There there really isn't a psychic certification program otherwise. Um, The only closest was, which actually was more extensive, the Winbridge Institute, which does research on mediums uh, and with mediums, did a, a lengthy process—a year process—of certifying research mediums, and they did it with 20 people. They're not—they're done. They, they have enough mediums for research now, but it was a slightly, significantly more detailed process than what the, what, uh, the Forever Family Foundation has done. Uh, in that, uh, they were really looking for mediums who can work under research conditions and has a good number of them. And they're all listed on both the websites, winbridge.org and foreverfamilyfoundation.org does list the certified mediums there.
1: Okay. All right. Very good, then. Um, let's, you know, you, you brought up, I, I know I said that the chocolate thing was going to be the last before we got to uh, shameless self-promotion corner. Let's talk about mentalism. What exactly is that?
2: Well, mentalism is the art. It's kind of a sub-art of magic, of stage magic. In mm-hmm. uh, we, all, we tend to call it psychic entertainment these days. But it's the idea that people are doing psychic-seeming things on stage or for entertainment purposes.
1: Okay. Now, what do you say to people, you know, like uh, professional magicians or you know, illusionists, whatever you want to call them, who are like, well, I can easily make this happen, so therefore it's not real, you know, a a psychic phenomenon?
2: two, Two things. Number one, just because you can fake something doesn't mean it's not real. If that were the case, Hollywood has disproved all of reality. (laughs) <laughs>
1: sorry i had a laugh. <laughs> sorry I had yeah yeah to it's, it's
2: that. true and, yeah. and actually before that stage stage you know stage folks have disproved a lot of reality also for that matter uh right. so duplicate and not to mention the fact that when i when i hear magicians say that it's like okay so um levitating a person you know i i know about a magic i used to be a magician myself levitating a woman how many ways are there to do that because what happens is that the magician says, I know how to do that, I can do that. But are you doing it the same way that the guy on stage did it?
5: Mm-hmm.
2: So again, just because there's a single explanation that you know, it doesn't mean that the actual explanation is the one you know, and that goes for fraud as well, not just reality. Oh, All right? okay. that, that's, so that, and that's, that's the second piece of this, is that duplicating something does not disprove it. And on top of that, there is multiple ways to do the duplication, and to, and I've, I've seen magicians, I've been with magicians who have misinterpreted what they saw another magician do and felt very self they felt filled with pride and, you know, they were just like being real asses, to be honest, and say, I know how you did that, and they'd just say, say whatever it is to the magician who would say, yeah, that's not how I did it. Okay. And this is pretty common, you know, any magician who says that they know how to do, how something is done, they might know one way something is done, but I can guarantee that if that were really the case, no new magic tricks would ever be sold at magic conventions.
5: Exactly. When you're in
2: the audience and you watch someone presenting a new effect with a new principle, the next thing you see after the guy is done doing that is every person in the audience running up to buy that so they can figure out how it's done.
5: Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I can I can definitely see that. Um, I, <laughs> there's... I, I, my wife hates like watching anything paranormal or anything associated with magic with me on television because it's like I can just look at that and say fake right there and she just she hates it but I got to watch this stuff every now and then so I can talk about it intelligently on the air Um okay we have another question from BLV70 which I'm assuming is Believe Um uh, Believe asks so is he saying you need to be certified to be a real psychic or medium
2: no no, I'm, I'm not saying you, you need to be certified to be a real psychic or medium. Um, that's for folks who want to go through a process so they can be recommended by the foundation, who uh, want it to be known to other researchers or to other people that they've gone through the, taken the trouble of going through this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the process is not for everybody, frankly, Um and it's it's not something that we, you know, the foundation does all the time, so they only do it certain times of year, because it's just uh, overwhelming to try to do it for everybody. But uh, and not every you know honestly not everybody I know some good good mediums who probably don't test I know that other ways in their lives they don't test well and they may not do very well in that, in that particular type of test.
1: Okay, uh, a follow up question is uh, how much does a certification cost?
2: Uh, I don't. Gosh, I, I don't believe the certification costs anything. <laughs> it's oh, your time.
1: Okay. Now you know uh, associated with this, and I've, I've talked to a couple people about. Well, what do you think about? Regulating
2: psychics—I don't know how you do that. Um, yeah, neither do I. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's not. First of all, in order to regulate psychics, the law would have to admit that psychics exist. Right. Uh, that's about well, the only way. I, I, I do know that um, you know it's it's not a bad thing for people to either submit to a background check or um, you know to, to that kind of thing to make sure that they're on the up and up in their business practices. Uh, And I've known people like some people claim that they're licensed by the city or licensed by the County or whatever. And yeah, they have a business license, which just means that there haven't been any complaints against them as a business operator. It doesn't mean that they're genuinely psychic necessarily. And I, I think that there, you know, regulation It would depend on what you mean by that.
1: Um, a, a government organization. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you watch Babylon Five because uh, you, you know yeah. I'm, I'm a nerd and you're, you're obviously one as well. You know how they had the, uh, how they had the that huge psychic organization. Like these people were regulated. Back they for, were yeah. taken away. Yeah, they were take the psychor taken away from their family as children and put into the psychor. Do you think that there's anything that, like that that could happen someday?
2: Uh, I. I don't. I don't know that that would ever happen until people actually had more controllable abilities. Number one, and I don't think that ever would be taken away from their their parents. Um, partly because there'd be enough of a reaction to that, unless everybody, unless the parents were afraid of the kids, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. There'd be yeah. enough enough of a, rea- a reaction that would be a negative.
1: Right now, you know, with all the negative. Um Well, I mean, you know, it's it's always been a highly controversial subject, but with all the negative attention that uh, ghost hunting, paranormal investigation, whatever, has gotten these days, um, especially with those uh, the chuckleheads down south burning that old uh, um, antebellum uh, Mm. farmhouse down. uh, I'm not kidding you, Lloyd. I'm sure you've seen the movie Scanners, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, when I I read this, I thought my head was going to explode scanner style. (laughs) Uh, I'm not kidding you. I, I wanted to. You know, I was like, "Oh my God! Thank you so much for setting us back another hundred years." But do you do you think that um, um, investigators should submit to some kind of regulation, or even even hold uh, insurance for that matter?
2: Well, I think what they should do is submit to some sort of education beyond watching television. Yes. And frankly, um, you know, this is a buyer beware situation. Even though there's no buying going on, most of the organizations don't charge anything, but it is up to uh, uh, the public to to find out what these people know before they take them on. And unfortunately, a lot of these folks of course puff themselves up and claim they know all sorts of stuff, um, including people who claim to have a degree in parapsychology because they get it from a diploma mill somewhere. And, you know, it's, you got to research. It's like going to a mechanic. It's got to be word of mouth. You have to have some background. You got to, you got to get some research done and you got to ask the right questions. And, uh, I've known people who have called me and said, you know, I tried to have this one ghost hunting group ask, come out, but when I asked them for references or I asked them what their education was, they got very, very hot and bothered, especially with the education and training thing, um, and they hung up the phone on me. That's Somebody actually oh. said that to me. We called this nice. group, and when I asked them what their educational background was their, their experiential background was in parapsychology, they got very huffy and said, well, if you don't want somebody to come out here and and, and help you out, then forget it, and they hung up the phone. So, mm-hmm. you know. You you have to be an educated consumer. You have to ask the right questions. Right.
1: Yeah, I know that even with myself. I I go by two different names, and one of them is kind of jokingly. The other one is serious. The first one is Foundation Psychical Research. That is what I seriously call myself. The other one is the Center for Psychical Inquiry, which is kind of a middle finger to the Center for Skeptical Inquiry. But um, you know what? I, I don't even have a website. And people look at me like, what do you mean you don't have a website? And it's like, dude, I am not out for trophies. Right. I'm out to answer questions and find answers to problems that have been around mankind since well day one, and I think that that's what it's all about. Would you agree?
2: I think so. Um, you know, whether you have a website or not, I think you know. I have a website. I think that I provide a lot of free information on the website, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things I tell people to look at. Well, there's nothing is, wrong with it. That's
1: not what I'm suggesting.
2: No, no, I know, I know. It's it's not about promotion it's about providing information, and that may not be your mode of providing information. And what there are just too many groups whose it seems like their intent is to make a TV pilot or to get on television themselves. Mm. They want their 15 minutes of fame, um, regardless of what that means. And I think that if there was going to be any sort of regulation or oversight, it would be necessary to make sure that these groups knew what impact they might have on people's lives. Um, You know, I find it really abhorrent how many times I and my colleagues have gotten calls from someone who said we had the local group come in. They stayed overnight after kicking us out of our house. So we had to go to a hotel because they wanted to be alone in our house. And the next Mm -hmm. morning we got back and they showed us the evidence said, your house is haunted. I'm really sorry. And then they left. And that's not why we called them in to begin with.
1: Yeah. High taps. We're here to help. Well, help with what? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. Um, So they don't know anything about helping. They know what they think they know about gathering evidence, which is not even any good, because they didn't even interview the witnesses to begin with. Mm -hmm. But they are about their own agenda, which is not the agenda of the client. Right.
1: And, you know, with kicking people out of the house, I love having the homeowner there, because chances are that spirit may be associated with that person in the house. Or
2: the activity, that's correct. There's a reason why those people are having the experiences, and you kind of need them around.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it, it's just uh, kicking people out of their home is absurd. So, Lloyd, we have finally come to that section of the show that we like to call Shameless Self-Promotion Corner, and as everybody knows, Paranormal Underground is all about shameless self-promotion. So is there anything that you would like to uh, you know, promote books, websites? I know you got a ton of them. Hit us.
2: Yeah, well, uh, first on the book front, um, I have four books that are available still on Amazon and Barnes & Noble's websites. Uh, one is called A Paranormal Casebook. Um, which actually is going to go through – it may be unavailable for a couple of months because it's going through um, a shift in the publication, and they are going to reprint it in the spring. So that will be out again. Uh, But the one that is currently available is The Ghost Detective's Guide to Haunted San Francisco. And whether you're interested in San Francisco sites or not, uh, that's co-authored by Annette Martin, the late psychic medium I worked with. This is kind of like um, us providing you with a ride-along, so you can see what it's really like for a psychic and a medium uh, – a parapsychologist and a medium to do investigations – and we include some transcripts of our conversations and even conversations, of course, rather one-sided, that Annette had with the entity (laughs) in the book. So it's kind of a fun book to read about some very famous places in in San Francisco. And then my other books are uh, Ghost Hunting, and the other one is Hauntings and Poltergeists, which are both still in print from 2004. Uh Um, Then the new one is called ESP Wars, and we hope to have that out in early February. So watch for that. Um, There'll be... Hopefully a lot of publicity or press around that since uh, Ed May is the former project director for Stargate. Uh, he'll probably be out talking about the about the boat programs, in fact. He's the one who kind of brought the Russians in on this as well. And that's called ESP Wars is what the title is going to be for that.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you'll be able to find out all about that and other things on my website, mindreader.com. Um, and then my courses. Um, my courses and the Ryan Education Center courses that I teach, please, please, please visit um, r h i n e dot org or org, and you can get directly to the courses that are there, uh, or come to my website and look up the tab that says, parasy- you know, there's a tab about the parapsychological studies program, and you can get to my courses, uh, which I do teach distance, and uh, both live and, and on tape, but I do spend time on the phone with my students, so this is a chance yeah. to have one-on-one with me. Uh, folks can find out about my mentoring by going to my website and just emailing me from there or just email profparanormal at gmail.com. It's like professorparanormal at gmail.com. And uh, the Forever Family Foundation, I should mention again, it's foreverfamilyfoundation.org, which is free to join. So join that one and okay. then take your money over to the Rhine Center and join the Rhine Center and get all the extras, which are the videos of incredible lectures and seminars and things that are part of the membership there as well. Uh, and then if you're going to be in California, Northern California in August, the annual convention of the Parapsychological Association, which is the scientific convention on parapsychology, will be held here outside of San Francisco, and I am the host. That's going to be in August, uh, around August 17th.
1: Okay, great. You know, Lloyd, thank you so much again for coming on the show. It's, a, again, a fascinating conversation, and I just I feel like we have not... We could not possibly cover everything in the hour and a half that we've had for you, so I'm really hoping that we could get you to come back on again someday.
2: Sure, sure, I'm happy to.
1: Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lloyd, for uh, coming on Paranormal Underground. As I said, a fascinating conversation. You are definitely a fascinating individual. So, um, thank you so much.
2: You're very welcome. Okay. Have a good night. You too. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye. Well. That was parapsychologist, uh, world-renowned parapsychologist, as well as uh, chocolatier. Uh, you know what, Cheryl? I can't help but laugh about that because it's like it's just this, the two just do not seem to connect with me for some reason. Pretty, I don't know why. Pretty cool, wrong. huh? <laughs> it is pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, definitely go check out you know Lloyd's websites, um, his books. I have a couple of his books actually that I've read through. Um, numerous numerous times one of them being hauntings of Poltergeist. it's it's a great handbook for anybody who wants to get involved in this um definitely a cool guy
0: yeah i'd like to thank him for coming on it's been way too long since we've been able to talk to him it just yeah it's it's like the time flies by when when he's talking <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, yeah. it's like that too when we have uh, when we have uh, Dr. Barry Taff on. Right. It's like whenever it, it's so weird. It's like whenever we have the parapsychologists on. It's like man, there is just not enough time to pick your brain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Seriously,
0: it's it's like some kind of weird uh, time c- continuum or something. <laughs> <laughs> it goes yeah, by way too fast.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So um, with Paranormal Underground Magazine as well as Paranormal Underground Radio, what kind of mm-hmm. stuff do we got coming up?
0: Well, we have let me tell you about our guest next week, January 9th, 2014. Oh my gosh, that sounds so weird to say. 2014, does
5: not
0: it? Yeah. Um we have Patricia Brooks and she has written a book. Now I I've only gotten in a few chapters, but so far I'm really liking what I'm reading. But the book is called God is in the little things: Messages from the Animals. Okay. Um and it uh it it it's really interesting and so i'm interested to find out more about um you know the the connections that we have with the animals and and how we get these messages from them and what they mean
1: so so are we talking that she's like a a, a pet psychic or what
0: not exactly
1: okay <laughs> that answers everything exactly.
0: yeah i i love to be helpful i'm so helpful um <laughs> right <laughs> We'll have to find out more (laughs) next week. Um, And then the week after January 16th, we're talking to your friend Luke Millett. He's an investigator and documentary filmmaker. Um, He has produced Ghost Tapes, a documentary on the paranormal, and I believe he is working on a second one.
1: And that is the one that Nancy and I are involved with, yes. Cool.
0: Awesome. Yep. And then we have, on January 23rd, Nate Raderman. He is the founder of Tri-City Research and Investigation of the Paranormal, a.k.a. Trip Paranormal.
1: Trip Paranormal. It sounds like we got a we got a full uh, docket of great guests coming up.
0: Yeah, we really do. Also, we have, and I think it's the last week of, of January, but I don't have it in front of me, but we have a pet communicator coming on, and I'm really excited about that um and i'll have more information next week about it but okay. um but i i just i it, her name is eden cross by the way but um i've been reading up on some of her uh talents and i am excited for that show so
1: yeah Yeah, you know talking to your pets I- you know, it's like you can only get. I, I don't. I don't have any pets. Unfortunately, we had to put our dog down a few years ago. It was, mm-hmm. Still mm. makes me want to cry. Uh, but um, you know what? Sorry. Every now and then, I do kind of feel her presence still around her. There's been a couple times where I'm sleeping in bed, mm-hmm. and I'm you know either about to go to bed or I am waking up and I am wide awake. And I swear, I'm not kidding you. It feels like she jumps into the bed and nestles wow. right between uh, my legs like she used
0: to. That's so cool.
1: But here's the problem though, it's like I'm the one that took her to mm-hmm. get put down because mm-hmm. she bit she bit Theo is what
5: happened. Mm-hmm.
1: And um I, I don't know if it's like a guilt thing. You know what? I should have asked Lloyd that. I mean if it's like a psychological thing that makes me think that mm-hmm. she's you know, still here, but I'll ask the pet psychic that. Maybe maybe she can maybe, answer that for me.
0: Maybe, maybe she has some answers in that area. Um definitely yeah. Um, I also wanted to let everyone know that we have a great January issue of Paranormal Underground Magazine. I can't really reveal too much now, but we should have an exciting announcement about the magazine, hopefully in a week or two, Um, and it involves... well, I can't really say. (laughs)
1: and i know Teaser. nothing about it ladies and gentlemen yeah, so and yeah. I, I the subtitle this man is a complete liar <laughs> no, <laughs> right. no it's, it, it is very exciting and i and i hope yep. it comes to fruition and i oh, hope we're we able to finally announce it
0: yes it's- definitely yeah. um also i wanted to um ask everyone who's listening live to stay tuned in for the next hour we have a new show following us it's with our good friend chuck gottsky he, he has a new show called in the dark radio right here on hazyradio.com. and his show airs from eight to nine pacific 10 to 11 central and 11 to 12 eastern so please stick around and hear uh, chuck's show he'll cover all sorts of paranormal phenomena including ghosts cryptids ufology on and on psychic stuff great stuff
1: yeah and you know what chuck is great he's he's a personal friend Mm-hmm. Um, love talking to him we talk quite a bit I've been on a couple investigations with him and his group In the Dark Investigations and they're a great group of people and um, a knowledgeable person you know I, I love I, can, I love that I can intelligently talk about this stuff with mm-hmm. Chuck and he gets it
0: oh definitely
1: yeah. good
0: good stuff coming you won't want to miss it
1: right so I'm thinking that it is time for us to hit the dusty trail uh, correct Cheryl correct Now, (laughs) considering the fact that I have problems with time zones, I guess I'm just a little bit stupid on that, Uh, (laughs) give us a rundown of what time zones, uh, where and when.
0: Alrighty, You mean uh, next week for our show, we want you to stay tuned to Paranormal Underground Radio. We air from 6 to 8 Pacific, 8 to 10 Central, and 9 to 11 Eastern.
1: Oh, man, I was hoping you were going to do the flyover states. That's like, that's like... I, I, hey, I was giving you some credit this week. That's that's Karen's thing, and it's yeah. you know the central time zone, the only time zone. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I'm totally joking, but everybody, thank you so much on behalf of uh, myself, Karen, who cannot be with us tonight, and the rest of uh, the great people that are at Paranormal Underground dot uh, net and Paranormal Underground Radio. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll, we will uh, we hope to see you back next week.
0: Thanks, everyone. See you next week.
1: Have a good night. Bye like to be a guest on
0: paranormal underground radio email editor at paranormal until next time keep exploring the unexplained at paranormal underground.net please join us next week for paranormal underground radio on the hazy radio network